0: It is often remarked that those who fail to learn their history are doomed to repeat it. Today's guests, in their work on Christian women in the patristic world, show that in the case of the diverse and profound ways that women contributed to the shaping of the church, its theology, its practices, its influence, it's more the case that those who fail to learn their history are doomed to suppress it. My name is Liam Miller, and welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. My guests today are Lynn H. Kohik, Provost and Dean of Denver Seminary in Denver, Colorado. She is the author of Women in the World of the Earliest Christians and Commentaries on Philippians and Ephesians. She is also the co-author of The New Testament in Antiquity. The second guest is Amy Brown Hughes, Assistant Professor of Theology at Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts. She received her PhD in Historical Theology with an emphasis in Early Christianity from Wheaton College and she is the co-host of the OnScript podcast, which has conversations on current biblical scholarship. Today, we are discussing their book, Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority and Legacy in the Second through Fifth Centuries, released by Baker Academic in 2017. Please welcome Lynn and Amy to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Amy, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're talking about your book uh, co-authored with Lynn Kohik, who's going to join us in a moment, uh, Christian Women in the Patristic World. Uh, what were your hopes uh, going in for the book? And uh, I guess it's been out for a couple of years now. How have you found its reception?
1: You know, when we, when we wrote this book, what we really wanted to see was... Just an opportunity to tell some stories, um, sort of at a very basic level, of having these them being accessible to people. Um, to just take the opportunity to not just have a paragraph on them or sort of a side thing, uh, but to have sort of a chorus of women all in one book. To just really get a sense for just how many women participated in the development of, of Christianity um, and how they all did this in, in different ways. So we really hoped to um, offer a book that was both academically rigorous, um, but also um, give people a, a place to connect with these women from so far long ago and seemingly at a, at a great distance, but, uh, from the reception that we've received, it seems uh, we've, it's been very overwhelmingly wonderful. Um, we've been very appreciative of that. And just hearing people say, you know, I, I had no idea. Um, some people just saying, I had no idea that women did anything or <laughs> in early Christianity. Cause it, it, there's just sort of a sense that women were sidelined mm-hmm. and in some, and in ways they were absolutely. Um, but women were participating. They were doing stuff. They were doing theology. They were, they were leading churches. They were, um, doing all sorts of things. Um, and we wanted to make sure to give voice to that. And what we've heard from the readers is, has been really just very lovely, uh, to be able to participate in a project that people of a variety of backgrounds have read and are giving just, um, just saying things like, uh, we're, we're just so happy that this exists. We're just so happy that there's an opportunity to listen to these women. And I had no idea that this existed. It's been great.
0: That's really excellent. And and I, I think I'm similar to that. There was some of the women I might've heard about or were a bit more familiar with, but then there was plenty. I was like, wow, did not know, did not know that. And we'll, we'll unpack some of those more specifics uh, as we go. How did you, I guess, first come interested in, in this idea uh, you know, this period and, uh, Lynn's joining us now. Hi, Lynn. Um, give her a second to get her <laughs> microphone all set up. Um, I guess the question is, so not only how did you become interested in it as individuals, but then how did you, um, come to work together on the book? How did you come to think This is a good idea for, for both of our time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had done some of my work in cause I work a little bit later in history. Um, than Linda's and I was working on a variety for for several years a variety of projects on on early Christian ascetic women like uh, early Christian virgins and that kind mm-hmm. of thing um, and and so a lot of names kept coming up <laughs> in, in my research and I it came across some just interesting texts um, in doing my master's thesis and in some classes and things um, and my dissertation spent a good amount, amount of time with a few of these of these authors that I interact with in the book. Um, so it was, it was really drawn out of my research, um, my interest specifically, but then Mrs. Um, Verlin comes in, um, getting to participate in her class um, and talk about my research on asceticism and then to have the opportunity to, Expand beyond what I was I was already doing, um, and get to know women that I hadn't really spent that much time with. So it was also sort of a personal. It was it was a very personal project for me too, in the sense of my. You know, I didn't show up knowing as much as I do know now. Know about like Pulcheria, for instance. Um, she'd always been a very interesting figure. Um, her specifically, I noticed her absence in a lot of the treatments of early Christian Christology. And I thought, how? (laughs) Cyril writes letters to her. Why isn't she involved in this? (laughs) So there's just a lot of questions like that that were kind of hanging in my research. And this was an opportunity to bring some of those together.
0: That's great. Well, Lynn, welcome to Love Roots Repeat. Thank you. Uh, so how did you, I guess, come to, you know, to be interested in this area and, and what was it like then joining with, with Amy on the book?
2: Yeah, I've, I've been interested in this area since I was in graduate school and I was looking at Julian of Norwich, which is a much later figure, a uh, medieval figure. Um, but her, her faith as it's expressed in her writing uh, was just very intriguing to me. I, um, she talks about uh Jesus and motherhood and it just so happens i was becoming a new mom at that point and so it was especially poignant to me and so and then during my graduate work i was also very interested in uh women in the new testament time so um so i mean i i've just i guess i've always been fascinated by that um when when Amy and I were both at Wheaton College, that's where we uh, really connected, and I knew that she was working on women in uh, in the church a little bit later than where my area of expertise is. I tend to be first, second, maybe a little into the third century, and she's more post-Constantine. But I was doing a class on women in the early church, and she came and spoke and did a just absolutely brilliant job and thought, Hey, this, this might go somewhere and turns <laughs> out it did. It was really fun. <laughs> we spent a lot of lunches um,
1: yes. talking yes. about this, dreaming about it. And, yep. and it was just, it was a really lovely time. I mean, I, scholarship is often a very solitary experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I always, I think it's really important for scholars to at some point work with others. Mm. on a project like this, not just like contribute to things, but like work with someone else. I thought it was a great experience.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We we had great conversations and I think it, uh, it helped the, the focus of the book, I think to be stronger um, because Mm. we, we would ask the kind of questions that continue to draw us back to what are, what are we really uh, focusing on and um, yeah. And then making that a a strong, Mm. strong,
0: well, and you both still seem to be, you know, friendly and willing to at least be in the same online room together. So I'm <laughs> glad that the, the process didn't drive too much of a wedge. Uh, uh. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking the other day there's, what, there's the popping up of all these new streaming services these days, Disney+, HBO Max, we've got Netflix, we've got Amazon Prime. Now, you've covered a lot of, you know, women or groups of women in this book. These, these streaming services need content. So if you're walking into the room, which women are you, are you, which woman in this book are you saying needs a 10 parts um, episode series on a streaming service? Some you know good, solid mini-series that's gonna delve into their life, their impact on the church and history. Who are you? You have different ones, that's fine. Who are you pitching to you know streaming service of your choice?
2: Well, I would say for uh Thecla she could be in the Marvel comic series because she's got a lot of super uh, human powers (laughs) Uh, Maybe she'd be Captain Marvel. I don't know Um, uh, But I think that uh, she certainly she she has a lot of dramatic experiences Um, I think that we talk about a woman who did pilgrimage Agaria and maybe she could be like on Discovery Channel (laughs) because she goes to a lot of places and 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 that, yeah. So I would say those two off the top of my head. Oh, for me,
1: it's definitely those empresses. Mm. Um, I could see a 10-part HBO's, like, intensive, (laughs) dramatic, like, one of their, like, cornerstone pieces, where, because those, uh, Polcaria and Eudokia have, uh, because they were contemporaries, right? They were in the same, and the the context of the time with all of the, I mean, you have riots, you've got like chariot races later. I mean, you just have all of this like early Byzantium, like why is there, isn't a miniseries on this anyway? I don't know. Um, but the, the drama that happens around the council of Ephesus is, is absolutely epic. Um, Mm -hmm. it deserves a show. Yeah. I've long said that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure you know some streaming services will be listening. That's that's yeah. the bulk of my audience. Uh, so throw <laughs> some throw some money at uh, your way to help develop those. Uh, hopefully, uh, you, you talk early in the book about the idea of responsible remembering and that comes up a bit, um, involving advocacy or a certain sense of advocacy for the historical subjects that you're you're helping to remember. Can you talk to us a bit about that and, and what that implies and how that shaped the working on the book?
1: Sure. So for this, this, that phrase comes from um, Justo Gonzalez's Manana, uh, a a small book, uh, but really excellent book on, I can't remember the subtitle, but it's like a Hispanic theology or something or other. Um, But it's a, that phrase has, has stuck with me for a very long time. um, And as, as being a way of, of doing history well. (laughs) I mean, because this, this is a, a project really of historical theology, right? Where we're telling stories, we're also asking theological questions and, and asking what their contributions were at the time. And, and I think for our case, when you're talking about women, um, and you're writing about Christianity and, you know, through Baker academic, right. Through probably a Christian heavy audience, then you have some questions we have to ask. Like, do we sanitize some of these stories um, in a way that, you know, makes it more palatable to what we kind of hope? Oh, you know, (laughs) uh, did we really have people that treated them this way or whatnot? Or um, also just a sense of advocacy for, as I mentioned with Polkaria, just not really having been part of the conversation. And it responsible remember there's a there's a responsibility right there to to recognize who participated in history and what their role is and there's a lot of if they're not sometimes just not included at all as being peripheral to the Christian story and I think really core to this book is that you get, you actually can't get away with that <laughs> that women were not peripheral um, to the development of christianity and and I think it's Uh, we took it as a very serious responsibility to say that um, history and theology require us to look at this honestly and say, you know, what was the context? What were they up against? What was happening? How did the church respond? um, What was written about them? How did they understand themselves? All these different things um, to look at that honestly, but, but to actually focus on it and to ask those questions and to give it the space that it needs to have.
2: I think we also were uh, very conscious of the fact that people are selective sometimes in what they're gonna pull from history to prove their point. And, and I think we, we wanted to make sure we didn't over interpret anything. Uh, we also recognize that today there are a variety of ways that churches organize themselves. Uh, And so we we didn't want to enter into a debate on uh, 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 ecclesiology today. We wanted to be descriptive about what was going on in in a very, we tried to be in a complete way um, so that people would would be able to uh, know the full story when they, instead of making claims like uh, I don't know, there were bishops, uh, female bishops in the ancient world or there weren't female bishops in the ancient world or, you know, throwing that around as a way to say what we should do today. I think Amy and I were uh, we were very interested in in um, not uh, over-promising but trying to be thorough.
0: Uh, thank you for that. You kind of talk it toward the end of the book again, the responsible remembering comes up um, and, and the duty, you know, kind of – for, you know, our thinking about representation today. And I guess how do you think, how would you encourage churches to practice this responsible remembering? Uh, You know, what what are ways that churches can kind of engage with the the breadth and the the depth and the the variety uh, in those who have led to from there to here?
2: I wish that at times... The, the churches would look at, at how, uh, um, how women um, or what women did or the questions that, uh, that women were engaged in rather than going with their own questions about ordination, for example, kind of picking up on my last point, um, that if we go with a certain question and we say, oh, they either did this or they didn't do that, I, we don't really enter into their world, but their world can actually say a lot to us, for example, on issues of poverty and wealth. There was a lot written on that, and women were very engaged in that topic. And and so we, I would encourage churches today to kind of, as they're thinking about those topics, allow the ancients to speak into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. I also think
1: that there's and we used a couple of examples at the end of the book, um, Marie Wilkinson being one of them, where looking at your own local community, like like looking, literally looking at your own body <laughs> as the, like that local body, um, and and even perhaps your your town or city locale, and going, who are the women that are doing the work now? And how are we? are we listening are we seeing it is it something that is um, that is being recognized is it is it not and and to see that as as continuous right because the church is um, the great cloud of witnesses keeps going <laughs> so to see that there are women doing stuff now and that that's part of the continual witness of the church and so part of it is to I absolutely agree with Lynn like having those historical voices speak into our current realities, but also how our current voices reflect what we see in those ancient realities now.
0: Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Some themes that emerge across uh, various chapters in the book, uh, we already talked like asceticism, uh, virginity, and then as we were just talking about maybe the renunciation or at least the creative use of money. Uh, was this something that you were kind of aware of going in or was it something that just kind of kept popping up as you were looking at the early sources? And why do you think these ideas and practices played such a, a prominent role uh, in, in, this, uh, in the women of this world and time?
1: So I'll be pretty, I'll be like large and general on this with thinking about all the sort of trappings of asceticism um, with even if, you know, the women weren't, um, necessarily embracing a full, like, ascetic lifestyle, but, like, aspects of it, for instance. But thinking about renunciation of wealth or of, of sexuality, marriage, all these different things, uh, there was a pretty significant understanding that in the, broads, in the broad understanding of the word that Christianity was political. <laughs> that, that you, uh, and because how you lived in the world um, mattered. Right. And so we, we see this in even some of the like some of the very basic things, like why we get all of these texts uh, that are obsessed with what women are wearing as aesthetics. There's just so many of them. And it sound they sound really out of context. They sound really intense and kind of ridiculous um, until you realize at the time that in, in a culture, especially among elite and wealthy women that, It's no different from now. What you wore was who you were. (laughs) And so there was an understanding that Christianity required something different. When you went into the waters of baptism and you were stripped, you're rubbed with oil to represent the Holy Spirit, and you were given a new robe that didn't distinguish you. Like if you had been wearing purple of one of the upper classes, then that was something that you submitted um, to the authority of Christ. And so this was a lot of times I feel like these decisions sound very like, well, women, women just sort of made these decisions as personal devotional practices. Um, when in reality, they were, they were intensely political. Um, and, and uh, Melania, the, the younger is a good example of this, who, you know, the empress comes to her and says, please, please don't sell everything because you're going to destroy our economy. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's consequences, um, to what they were doing, and, and they understood, uh, and they went as far as they did because all of the luxurious meats and all of those clothes and the hairstyles and all of that, participating in that meant participating in a political or- order that was inherently problematic. So in an imperial structure that was really in so many ways, Christianity was counter-political right? Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but especially close to post when when, perse- when the great persecution wasn't a, 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 was still a recent memory, the idea of putting on a t-shirt that says, I heart the Roman Empire, right? Like <laughs>
2: <laughs> which
1: in a lot of ways, participating in, in sort of the ways the Roman Empire operated, like there was, that's why asceticism and martyrdom have a lot of continuity there, because there's a really sort of um, uh, counter-imperial oppression and violence narrative that continues through all of these aesthetic pieces. Um, So it makes it even more interesting when you have empresses (laughs) embracing that exact political identity, but still also being an empress.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I think that that connection to uh, martyrdom that asceticism makes um, is really uh, very important. It's political. There's also a theological piece that I know Amy uh, speaks on quite a bit in her chapters. And what we see in the the early martyrs like Thecla, Perpetua, Felicitas, Landina, those uh, female martyrs are claiming a belief in the resurrection of the body. And so imperial power and political power is also this world power. And when you say that I can lay this body down and Christ will raise it back up, uh, the, the imperial power really it is um, eviscerated. Right. It, there is no power uh, left. And so I think that that was something that the martyrs really uh, promoted, that this idea of the resurrection of the body and the, the body. Of a female martyr was as important as the body of a male martyr. So I and I think that's one of the things the book brings out is how for a a lot of what the women did, the men were also doing. There's not, I mean, you do have certain things that are specific to female um, uh, expressions of piety. But even the, in, in using Amy's example just now with the issue of uh, hairstyles and clothing, yes, it did, and jewelry certainly pertained to women, but men were also judged by what they wore as well. So while we are talking about women in this book, um, there, there's a lot of parallels with just what, what men were also talking about.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. That's, that's a really helpful um, building out of the world there. Um, a helpful corrective your book provides uh, is that it demonstrates the ways women were also impacting the developing of the dynamic theology of the early church. So kind of, it wasn't just these personal pietistic decisions. It was you know, an actual like, entering into this broader conversation. Uh, however, as you observe, this kind of realization is only possible if we free ourselves of, kind of the narrow view that theology is only to be found in treatises and, and creeds. Uh, I guess where did you go looking for theology then, or these, these, the way these theological conversations were happening, or this the, theological input was happening? Uh, and what are some of the I guess surprising things this revealed about the active role women were playing in the uh, early and key theological movements of the church?
2: Well, I, I think one of the thing, and Amy will be able to speak to this much more, but I think in terms of the martyrs, I think um, oftentimes. Um, in, the, in the post-Constantine church, when you have the celebration of relics and, and you have the remembrance of the martyrs on their, quote-unquote, birthday when they were martyred, um, I think there is a, a sense among scholars, at least, that somehow that's just um, superstitious stuff that the regular folk did. But the people who actually wrote the creeds, they, they were just engaged in all this abstract uh, thought. And in, in reality, they were as much involved in remembering the martyrs as anybody else. And I think that's an important piece to know that women uh, were involved in, uh, in ritual and men were involved in ritual. And that um, is, has a role then in the creeds. But I'll turn it over to Amy, who does a lot more with the creedal part of things.
1: Yeah, so uh, just using—I mean, we brought up Thecla earlier, right? Like Thecla was was is a thread that runs throughout our entire book. I mean, even when you have Gregory of Nazianzus, right? Who's Gregory the theologian, spending time at a, at a Thecla shrine. Like this is uh, so. Uh, none of these men who are at these councils um, could escape the contributions of women. Like it's just, you know, they weren't doing this in a vacuum. Um, but yeah, women weren't voting at these things, but at the same time, I don't think that no one shows up to any of these councils and thinks that this is where theology is going to happen primarily. Like it was mostly where decisions were, were kind of codified and that kind of thing. There was some discussion, um, but a lot of times there wasn't a lot of the theology that was going on was happening. Um, I think it's, I think it's Gregory Nyssa. in one of his letters talks about how, um, you could go to the marketplace and hear people talking about, you know, Uh, you know whether the son was same essence and all this stuff. So there was a sense in which this was a not just in churches either, but like a, a cultural these cultural conversations that were happening at the time, and a lot of people were involved in them. And I think that the way theology has been understood is in. In looking at the early church, there's a sense that we go to from our modern perspective of theology, we tend to go to things that look familiar to the way we do theology now. So we go to the big books, we go to the this, we go to the that, and those are all fine. But you, you spend five minutes looking at these early Christian theologies and realize that they didn't have that kind of distinction. They were doing theology and biblical commentaries um, and not seeing a distinction between a systematic theology versus like a biblical commentary, like no distinction. Um, they were doing theology in letters. They were doing theology in, I mean, Methodius is a good example of theology in a platonic dialogue. <laughs> um, and they were using all of these different kinds of things because to them, theology wasn't a genre. It was the way the church worked, uh, the way the church engaged with God and with one another. um, So I think we have to as readers now is is to recognize our own context with this and maybe some of the assumptions we bring to previous times in in history and and to perhaps see, uh, it will offer us a broader view of of what uh, the early church has to offer if we don't sort of, Pigeonhole where theology is done or comes from, because the early church wouldn't agree with our assumptions.
0: <laughs> that's that's very helpful. I um I put it out to Twitter that I was doing this this interview and asked if there were any questions. And and one kind of I guess builds off this quite well, which was the importance of art in in reconstructing or remembering what the role of women is. And there's plenty of art in the book. Um, so you want to speak a bit to that about what you know going looking at the, to art to try to, uh, you know, build this, this remembering.
2: Well, I think the, the catacomb, uh, chapter, I did a lot of research on that and found that absolutely fascinating. Art is not, um, not always easy to interpret. It's one of the wonderful things about art is it speaks, uh, in, in its own language. Um, and one of the, um, Interesting things about the catacomb art is there's so many women figures Including what is called the Iran's figure, which is a pose like this with the arms up bent at the elbows palms Um up towards heaven and that's a classic pose that we find uh, In in pagan uh, Art all over the place. We find it also in these christian um, Catacombs and the, and the catacombs by the way are, are burial sites. They're not secret uh, the Romans knew what was going on in there. Um, but they're intriguing because they have these, uh, these women. And uh, if nothing else, what the artwork shows is how involved women were in the expression of Christianity at those most poignant times, i.e. in death. And then secondly, it shows how important certain Bible stories were to the whole community, and some of those Bible stories included women as central figures, like, for example, Susanna, which is a, um, a character that's part of the Daniel story, and and so the there's uh, the, what that should signal to us is that the um, that women played an active role in in how Christianity looked in the early centuries before it became illicit religion, you know, with Constantine. Uh, It looked like you had uh, women and men uh, very much participating around meals um, and and caring for the community, even those that had passed and also thinking about it through the stories in the Bible.
1: I also think we have some more throughout the book you note that we have several different pieces right um, and the cover comes from a uh, a church in Arezzo that is an entire fresco cycle um about the, the true cross and you have Helena on the front there um and I just happened to like be back there and to see this and <laughs> think yeah this shit this would look good on the cover of a book <laughs> Um, But we include a few other ones, like images of Monica and Augustine and and, and such. And I think it's important to to see that women are are marginalized in various ways, but there's also the constant, like, and has been sort of throughout history, this constant representation of women as being part of these conversations, um, as being influential, in these people's lives as um being um being there um and is a con- it's a continual reminder that like using the monica and augustine example for instance that with such a towering figure like Augustine to have this this woman who's such a you know being his mother of course being a, a major part of his life but how he perceived her and we and we can read we can read the confessions um and the early dialogues that we look at um in the book the Kasakiakum dialogues and then also see Renaissance art and all sorts of things and see how Christians throughout history and, and artists who were um, patronized by other people, right, especially during the Renaissance, um, that continue to see, to receive the importance of these relationships, the importance of, um, in some of these major figures' lives. So we we just wanted to show that, like, the church hasn't really been ignoring them (laughs) Uh, as much as maybe sometimes uh, we might perceive maybe our particular tradition doesn't highlight women's contributions as much, Um, but that women have, uh, they were there and people know that they were.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for that. You, you uh, were mentioning then Monica, and, and Monica and uh, Macrina are may, you know, maybe two of the more well-known women in the book, depending on your tradition and what you've read, um, but kind of thanks to, say, the prominence of their male family members who wrote about them. Uh, what's it like trying to, I guess, approach these historical subjects through the writings of a singular male family member? And I guess was there anything you found that the united maybe united Augustine's and, and Gregory's intentions of preserving the mem- the memory of these uh, influential family members?
1: I think both, uh, both Monica and Macarena, the reason we put them together um, is because both of them were not only just family members, but family members that were cherished. Um, I, you can't read The Life of Macarena or uh, The Confessions without coming away with a real sense that, uh, their, their, uh, brother and son respectively, uh, could have lived without them in a way. (laughs) They're, they're just very warm texts. Right. And there's a real sense of, of, of closeness and of, and of care. Um, and so, but there are questions of, well, can you get to, uh, scholars have had various questions about, can you get to the real Macarena or to the, the real Monica. And I would sort of open that up to pretty much any historical figure, even if we have direct writings of them, can we get to the real Augustine? I mean, how many thousands upon thousands of books will be written before, we, <laughs> before we realize, no, <laughs> we can't. Um, because we will always be at a distance. We'll always have that. And and so the Monica we have, the Macrina we have are, um, are who we know through these men who, uh sort of preserve their memories and posterity. And that and that's not um I mean that's what we have, so we can't like pretend that it's not that. Um but we can look at what because it's their remembrance of these women, it's their life of Macarena, it's their um story about them in the confessions that becomes um constitutive for how people know who Monica and Macrina are so in a very real way the only monica we've ever known is augustine's monica the only macrina we've ever known is gregory's monica or macrina so um there's a sense in which we do need that's where that's where that responsible remembrance comes in and says you know there is, there is a sense of distance here and there are some interesting questions we do need to ask like what um when we look at on the soul and the resurrection like this doesn't read like a transcript. So what is Gregory doing here? Right. Um, and there's some, there's some ways that we can get at that, which we do in the book. Um, but without sort of pretending that, that Gregory's like not writing this from his perspective about his sister. Right. We can be honest about that, but it still matters. Like their legacy is still theirs, even if it's mediated.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I guess uh, toward the end of the book, you talk about the way power was understood and explored by many of these patristic women, uh, maybe a power in weakness or a power in humility grounded in the uh, imitation of Christ. I mentioned at one point an authority used to bless neighbours. Can you explore this for us a little and I guess any, I, gather, I guess either potential or potential risks uh, in trying to learn from that and maybe uh, model ourselves after that today.
1: Well, I, I, I want to bring in Lynn here in a second because Blandina is a, is a good, <laughs> uh, is, a, is a good place to have that uh, person to have that conversation with too. Um, but I, I think there's a, there's a real risk that when you're talking about um, like be like these women who uh, like, Power being manifest in weakness, then that means that people who are already marginalized, who are already oppressed, would be have to be um, perhaps marginalized or be more humble than they already are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I would just point to how core to pretty much every woman that we look at the book—not all of them—the core that Christ is to them and in, in Christological imitation. Um, and a real sense of, of what it meant for Christ to suffer. Um, and, and the strong identification, and, and, and not in a sense of I'm like Christ, but like actual embodied participation, like living into Christ's sufferings, like taking that extremely seriously. But recognizing that at the same time that that is a, a place of agency. Um, And and whether that turns out to be agency from like a historical perspective is another question, but they understood it that way. Um, And to see that they weren't seeing that as a place where God is wanting them to heap on themselves even more suffering in the sense of like letting people... Um, destroy them. In fact, as Lynn mentioned about the sort of resurrection, like the imperial power doesn't have it's a it's a different kind of understanding of what power is. Um and so Christologically the these women really had kind of this and, and men too had this idea that Christ uh suffered and then their suffering is 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 connected to Christ's suffering that they're not first of all not doing this on their own um but with others and with Christ and that um and that this isn't a place where they're having to become less than who they want to be um now you might quibble with that theological articulation right but th- that's that's how they were understanding it um there's that they were seeing point. Christ with them in that place
2: Yes, there's a phrase uh, just occurred to me—a biblical phrase. It's not in the book, but um, when John the Baptist informs his uh, disciples that Christ must become greater and he must become less, that is, John the Baptist becomes less, and I I think that certainly frames the um, goals of so many of the saints in the period that we were studying, both men and women, that you want to become more like Christ, and so you look at uh, the habits of Christ. And obviously they're going to do it through their lens, but certainly, uh, moderation, uh, even asceticism was, a was a goal that they also saw in Christ, in Christ's life. So I think the, the, the putting Christ first was a theological conviction. It was not a pseudo humbling personal kind of approach that, um, that was forced on, on women. It was something that women and men held as, as a conviction, where I think that um, the gender piece can be seen is in, for example, uh, Landina. She is a slave woman who ends up being the leader of a group of martyrs. Um, And the, the, as the story unfolds, she's one of the last that, last standing, so to speak, last alive. Uh, and in one particular poignant scene, she's hung up on a stake on a cross, uh, like device. And, um, the others who are around her, look to her and, and what they see is not Blandina. They see Christ. It's a very powerful point of the story. And, and so in that, um, in in that case, the the woman is not disappearing in some kind of negative way. At least that's not how the Christians would see it. She's actually representing that uh, they're the one they love the most. Um, that would be the same with the martyr Perpetua. Um, she she ends up being the the leader of the group of martyrs, and and they all look to her, uh, and she takes up the responsibility of leadership. I think perhaps because she comes from uh, a more wealthy family, uh, is probably a little bit more educated and then just used to making decisions or pe- other people looking to her as though she should be in charge. She also has some visions and that solidifies her um, her authority. But we, I think both Amy and I were trying to get at the idea that these women often um, had, had uh, responsibilities and authority, um, because of because of their testimony, um, and and that it, it they had this uh, this uh, very important um, role to play in the church, irrespective of whether they had a title like empress. Um, that they they actually just excited the imagination of of Christians um, because of because they stood for the ideals. Uh, of the christian faith
0: well thank you for that so we're coming to an end Uh, i like to play a little game as we come to the end called um pairings you know if you've been in a restaurant before there's a a pairing of a wine with a meal Uh, so the way we do it here is you have to take your book uh, and pair it uh with with a meal Uh, a good meal that would be you know could be eaten alongside reading of the book uh, a piece of music, like a song or an album or something like that, and, uh, and another book, another book. So once you've read Christian Women in the Patristic World, you're like, oh, I want more. I want something that bounces off these ideas. What, what should they take off their shelf? or uh, put in their uh, online book cart um, after that. So I'll turn over to you guys to have a, have a, have a, have a crack at that.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, wow. I, I can say the song. Uh, you you got, a yeah, song? got a song. What's the song? I think
1: I got a song, and it, it might be a little silly, but it's the one that immediately came to <laughs> well, not silly song, but it immediately came to my head was uh, "Girls Run the World" by Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Like, so like, I, mean, that, I feel right. like every single chapter is like <laughs> it's women. Like, Blandine is a good example of that. Like, yeah. I'm a slave, but I'm gonna be Christ here in this moment. Like I'm going to run this. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah, And your, um, your question about a meal, boy, I don't know. I almost feel like we should say a buffet because you know, what, what are you going to eat as you read a a martyrdom account? Hmm. I, you know, compared to (laughs) reading something and someone on a journey versus then the, you know, I don't know it. That's where I think probably a buffet, uh, it would probably yeah, be the best. I, I go with that but a, like a good buffet not like <laughs> a, yeah yeah not awesome. not a cheap one no i'm thinking of like an easter buffet how's that resurrection oh, that, oh i like it good. an easter buffet there you go all right at <laughs> a nice restaurant and then you asked another another book to read is yeah you know? so
0: like a, yeah something that would, would complement the book well
1: um
2: I was going to say,
1: I've got one.
2: You got uh, well, <laughs> okay. no, well, I was just thinking that uh, we tried to develop the the church from a particular angle. Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History uh, would give uh, audiences a slightly different uh, mm-hmm. angle on some of the same things that we talked about.
1: Mm. Yeah. So an ancient book, and I I was actually thinking of Kate Wilkinson's. Um, oh. Women in Modesty in Early Christianity. Yep. great. I and mean, we use her book and ours, mm. but it's just a great, a great piece um, mm. uh, that I think goes really nicely with, with the subject matter mm. that we have. But um, I also would say reading um, something significant, like a significant work on Christology mm. would be a good fit with this. Perhaps something as, as, as intense as um, The Crucified God by Jürgen Moltmann,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, Something that yeah, is like fiction. a really intensive perspective yeah. on Christology.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, or even um even something like um James Cohn's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, it really sort of sees that piece of the, the sort of uh marginalized uh, the suffering of society. Yeah. Uh because I think that's a place where um uh, where the martyrs would be would be interested in that conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, yeah.
2: I, I think both Amy, sorry, I think both yeah. Amy and I would really hope that people would be excited to read the primary sources that we drew from. Mm-hmm. And that, that would be my uh, my real hope is that uh, someone would read Perpetuous Martyrdom. It's not that hard, you can just Google it, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, read uh, Thecla, the Acts of Paul mm-hmm. and Thecla. Um, that I think the the a lot of them are accessible and uh, that that they're just fun. I think mm-hmm. they're just fun. There, there you can pull up a, a nice cup of coffee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, lovely. Well, we've got people's next six months of reading covered now. Very uh, It's exciting. Right. The book, everyone, is Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the Second Through Fifth Centuries, available now through Baker Academic. Uh, check it out. Buy it. Do the five-star review thing on Amazon because that helps, so please go on and do it. Um, Lynn and Amy, thank you for coming on. Is there anything else you'd like to promote? Any other ways to connect or anything else you want to shout out at this moment?
2: No, I just really appreciate that you sought, sought us out. We, we certainly love talking about our favorite subject. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I agree. I'm just excited to um, be able to continue um, offering a resource in the world that, uh, that people can read and, and learn about these women. It's exciting.
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's, look, it's, it's, you can still buy it now for Christmas I and mean, a great Christmas present uh, for, Pete, for your friends and family out there. So, you know, get yeah, onto sure. that and buy yourself one yeah. because you deserve it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Love Wins for Pete.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.